0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. These are questions that you asked us to answer we compiled the results from a survey we sent out to over 10,000. There are a people. a lot of people who, who don't necessarily feel the permission to really struggle with these things and wonder out loud about these things here in church let's be gracious as we enter into these topics let's be aware of differences let's be open to what god might want to teach us And let's approach each of these weeks with our eyes wide open. We say, I believe. I believe that Christ's death was for me. I believe his resurrection is my resurrection. I believe he paid for my sins. That's actually my hope and prayer for all of us today, that we would experience the Jesus that can and will radically change our lives. Hey, everybody, my name's Steve, I work here. There was a, uh, uh, I think he was about six-year-old boy in, in the building this week, and he asked me where my room was. And uh, I said, well, you mean my office? He goes, no, where you sleep? And I'm like, my office. Eh. Anyway, we've got, uh, we've, we've got to dive into the Word today because we're asking the question, is the church anti woman, and uh, Cornerstone isn't, it? but unfortunately, I have to answer, <clears throat> throughout history, yes, it, it, there has been, uh, many people perceive our religion as a religion that holds women down, and not the only religion, but definitely, they say, well, you deny women uh, roles that are reserved only for men, and uh, of course, this isn't a problem only in church, this is a societal problem, and every human, human civilization um, has, um, women have struggled, and uh, which is all the more reason for the church to step forward and lead the way and do everything we can to empower women to discover and use all of their, their gifts and abilities, because Jesus isn't anti-woman. Can I get a response right there? Um, and the Christ, so the Christian faith shouldn't be uh, at all. We shouldn't have that reputation. And uh, so, but I have to tell you, we're gonna dive into some uh, interesting scriptures on this one because, and I, I wanna give you fair warning because I'm gonna open up, especially when I open up the writings of the Apostle Paul, um, some of you are going to hear uh, a preacher say some things for the very first um, time in a reinterpretation of what has been, I believe, a poor interpretation of Paul. Um, And I don't know about you, but the first time I hear a viewpoint that contradicts something I've held for a long time, I I go, whoa, 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 wait, you know. uh, Pastor, you're treading on some holy ground there. My old pastor, I really respected him. Uh, He wouldn't have said what you just said. And I wanna respect that, uh, and I want uh, to say that I, I think, I think around here, if, if anyone's gonna change your mind about anything, it comes over time. But today, uh, I, I just wanna say that if you grew up in, in a Christian denomination that held to policies where women were not allowed to teach men or where women were not allowed uh, positions of leadership and authority, like being a pastor or a board member, I'm gonna open up the same text that those denominations used to, to uh, validate that policy, and I'm gonna offer an opposing um, viewpoint today. And then you can do whatever you want with that. Um, but uh, one thing's for sure, if, if you disagree with me on something like this, this should not be a deal killer for us to be fellowshipping together. This isn't about the resurrection of Christ or the second coming or, or how people are saved. This is a, a B-level issue in the church. But it's one that's very important to me because uh, gender restrictions have long um, held women back and I think it's been to the detriment of the church and we could have benefited a lot more had we read the scriptures differently. All right, you with me? All right, good. 17 of you are with me. That's great. That's just great. All right, so let's, let's start with what the Apostle Paul said, uh, because a couple of things he wrote about women's roles in church are the heart of the debate. And as, as you hear me unpacking it, you're going to hear me use the word context. Say that with me, context. Uh, And uh, when we read a small passage of Scripture, the best thing to do is look at the chapter before, the chapter after, then look at the whole book of the Bible, and then look at the whole Bible, and say, what's the context of this particular verse? And the other context we look at is culture. What's the context of first century culture, and does that necessarily play in sometimes to the instructions in, say, the New Testament. Like when we read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what's the context of the wilderness, and does that play in at all, or are we supposed to still be obeying those wilderness rules, uh, so to speak? So context, all right, so let's get started. Uh, The author of the the New Testament books we'll be looking at is who? The Apostle Paul. Uh, And Paul gave us much in the New Testament, and almost all the instructions for the church come from this one man, Paul, and you remember, Paul was originally Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, and as a Pharisee, he would have formerly held some pretty uh, strict, uh, dare say, somewhat demeaning uh, or at least condescending views of uh, women. The Jewish religion didn't honor women like it did men. Now, that's not just Jewish thought in play. Roman thought was the same, Greek thought was the same. Uh, Boys were valued higher than girls uh, in the first century, as they are in some places of the world uh, today. A young, woman, a young woman was her father's possession until she reached childbearing years. And then he would, uh, uh, a man would approach him and say, hey, I've noticed your daughter. And they would enter into some negotiations. And then with the father's approval and some um, uh, exchange of, of goods, the girl would be purchased from the father and become Uh, and the the man would take her as his wife. But she's still not free. Now she's just the possession of another man. First century woman had few legal rights. Uh, She could not own property. She could not, uh, uh, getting a job was difficult. Uh, She couldn't file for divorce or even testify in court. Even if the trial was about her, uh, her testimony wasn't considered valid because, you know, she's a woman. Uh, And... uh, Women were given the most rudimentary education as girls. Boys were always uh, given priority and allowed to stay in school much later than the girls were. The girls were supposed to go home and prepare uh, to be wives. The boys, as long as they showed promise, could advance in their education. And the rabbis would teach girls, but not some of the more chauvinistic of them. Uh, there's a rabbi, Rabbi Elzer, that was, has a famous quote where he said, I'd rather burn the Torah then teach it to a woman. Yeah, that's harsh. And we don't know where the Apostle Paul would have come down on this spectrum, uh, but we do know that after his dramatic conversion, Paul shows, shows some great promise uh, when he starts uh, leading in the church. Uh, his teaching on spiritual gifting that we find in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes these long lists of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives people in church, talents, abilities. And uh, what's interesting is he doesn't have a men's list and a woman's list, leading us to assume that the Holy Spirit gifts both men and women with all of the spiritual giftings, including leading and preaching. And Paul, I think, would have agreed with the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where Peter has to explain to the crowd what's, ex- what's happening. Because you have a Jew- the Jewish capital, yet-, yet on the Jewish capital, in the Jewish capital, On the day of Pentecost, you have men and women standing side by side, declaring the greatness of God under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter explains, he goes, yeah, I know this is unusual for all of us, but he said this is exactly what the prophet Joel predicted when he said, in the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, both men and women. Uh, and so then later, Paul would have affirmed this, that now in Christ, uh, post-Christ, post-Pentecost, there's no more Jew or Greek. And that would be revolutionary for a Pharisee to say something like that. Uh, Jews felt themselves superior to every other ethnicity in the world. Uh, but Paul's saying, no, you're not, we're, not, we're not superior. There's no more Jew nor Greek. There's no more slave nor free. And the church was... This was interesting because the church had slaves and freemen now sitting side by side, born again, sitting in church together. And Paul said, and there's no more male or female in Christ. Um, and it's not that they're the same, it's that they're equal. Uh, a Jew doesn't become Greek, but a Jew learns to respect the Greek. And a man doesn't become female, but he learns to respect women in Christ. And that would have just been crazy for people to think that Christ had somehow destroyed um, these barriers. And there's a lot of scripture, even in Paul, about walls coming down and barriers uh, being broken. The other thing we know about Paul is he enjoyed many working relationships with strong women throughout the empire. Uh, In Acts 21, we read about Paul's friend, Philip, who had four unmarried daughters, all with the gift of prophecy. In Acts 16, we meet Lydia, who led the church in her home in Philippi. Uh, In Acts 18, it is Priscilla, together with her husband, Aquila, who tutored the great uh, uh, preacher, Apollo. And then there's that list in Romans 16 of Paul's ministry partners throughout the world that includes so many women, including a woman, Junia, that Paul refers to as an apostle. So in practice, we know that Paul worked well with women and encouraged them to lead. However, we have these two passages of Paul's, one in Corinthians and one in 1 Timothy, where he seems to deviate from his own practice and recommend that women be silent and not hold positions of authority and not teach and and, and very harsh restrictions, actually. We're gonna look at them whenever the church gathers. So we ask ourselves, why would Paul do things one way and then recommend the churches do things the other way? Well, anytime we see contradiction in scripture, we slow down and then we say, okay, well, there's contradiction here. Therefore, there may be conflicting opinions. And I want to say, before I dive into the two uh, verses, how much respect I have for people that don't agree with me on this issue. And I don't in any way want to come off as I'm I'm sure I'm right, Uh, I know, but I wouldn't be preaching this had I not studied it at... At length, and I do believe I'm right, but definitely have to humble myself through uh, before men and women who have far more education than I do, uh, who have led well, who disagree with me. Having said that, we do disagree. So let's open up 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty-four, and let's see what old Pastor Steve has to say about what Paul said here. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Man, that is, why would Paul say that? And most importantly, is this a command that we were supposed to be following for the last 25 years at Cornerstone. Well, obviously, I I think it isn't, or we would have been following it, but I want to explain why. And I think the answer why comes out of context, the context of the rest of 1 Corinthians, the context of the rest of Scripture, and the context of culture. Uh, The context of this letter of Corinthians is that Paul, starting in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you can flip back and you can see it, he's starting to give um, specific regulations for public worship. When we gather, how to behave in such a way that benefits everyone. We get the idea with their newfound Christian freedoms and spiritual gifting, church members, both male and female, were, uh, were kind of taking things to an excess, especially in the Corinthian church, and it was becoming chaotic. So Paul is telling these church members to rein it in and to exercise some self-control for the benefit of the entire group. It seems that the women in some of the first century churches were abusing their newfound freedoms and dominating the church discussions. Biblical scholars tell us that two different things were happening at the same time that contributed to this. On one end of the spectrum, you had women who had received little, if any, education, who had now been liberated by their faith in Christ. And like children who have never been allowed to speak, that finally get the opportunity. The the women just can't stop peppering the men with questions uh, that would have better been answered at home. Not only that, there was strong cultural division between men and women back then. And so if the husband doesn't answer your question, maybe the guy down the row could answer your question. And next thing you know, the guy down the row and this woman are having an offline conversation that the church would have felt was inappropriate. Paul says, if you have a husband, ask him and he'll come up with the answer. And he is recommending that for this particular group and maybe even for other churches as well. But Roman historians tell us that something else is happening on the other end of the spectrum in the exact time that the Apostle Paul is writing Corinthians where a first century women's liberation movement was sweeping the Roman Empire. Women were fed up with centuries of being held down and dominated by men and they had finally decided to take things into their own hands. And as always happens, when an oppressed group finally rises up, there were so many excesses in the first century that the church could not support what this feminist movement was promoting. They called themselves the New Roman Woman, and they were coming on like gangbusters. For centuries, they had been required by law to show respect to their husbands in public, whether or not the men deserved it. But the New Roman Woman would have none of that, giving herself permission to publicly berate her husband in front of all of his friends. There are stories of these aggressive women dominating at parties in Rome and other places, loudly haranguing men for hours. And for the new Roman women's movement, it went much further than than public boorishness and, and rudeness. It also included a new morality, or we could say an old immorality. There was a social rule back then that encouraged Roman men to have extramarital affairs. It was expected, but the women were supposed to remain chaste and loyal to their husbands. The new Roman woman gave herself permission to do the opposite, to dress, to speak, and act seductively in order to attract her own extramarital partners. If pregnancy was the result, abortion was encouraged. So I believe that Paul wanted his sisters in Christ to distance themselves far from this movement. Not that Christian women were not liberated, but they were liberated for much more noble purposes than these. And this is the context of culture. Okay, now let's look at the context of the rest of 1 Corinthians, a letter full of instruction for the early church. One interesting instruction is in chapter 11, and you can flip back and look at it if you like, and maybe later you'll want to study it. Chapter 11, the Apostle Paul tells women what they're supposed to wear on their head when they are prophesying in church. Did you catch that? The apostle Paul is telling women in chapter 11 what to wear when they are speaking up in church. Yet in chapter 14, he tells them to be silent in church. Do you see the contradiction? Whenever there's a contradiction, we slow down and say, maybe I'm not understanding what's going on. But I say this, if Paul were demanding complete silence from women in chapter 14, then chapter 11 makes no sense at all. I believe the Apostle Paul was teaching them what he would coach us to do, an encouragement for all of our gatherings to be productive and edifying and to not allow influence on the outside to affect what's going on in here, for all of us to show respect and restraint so that the world can see how truly liberated people behave themselves. Now... If you disagree, the alternative to my interpretation is to ignore the rest of 1 Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament, to ignore culture of that time, and to require our women to be completely silent whenever we gather on the weekends or in our homes at church, even in our community groups, churches where only men are allowed to speak. Well, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want to attend that church, and I don't think you would either. But if we are going to say that 1 Corinthians 14 is to be literally taken by the, first century, by the 21st century church, that's exactly what we would have. All right, let's look at the other one of Paul's writings, often quoted on the same topic. It's, it's found in a letter Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner." but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. All right, once again, let's look at the context and the culture. In this this book, Paul has given Timothy uh, instructions that a pastor would need. Uh, Timothy leads the large Ephesian church where, like in Corinth, the new Roman woman movement was in full swing. I believe that Paul's reference to childbirth and even Adam and Eve is clearly in response to the influence these brash pagan women had when it came to their reckless sexuality. Uh, Paul, who in other places teaches about the holiness of marriage, now promises women that God will protect them if they will take their baby to term. Another pagan influence in Ephesus that we need to know about is that this is the worldwide center of the worship of Diana, also known as Artemis, and this dominated the Ephesian landscape. The temple was the largest building in Ephesus and the second largest building in the world for many, many years. Surrounding the temple were countless temple prostitutes making themselves available They dressed in expensive revealing outfits, wearing elaborate hairstyles and expensive jewelry given to them by their regular customers. They were brash and loud, imitating their mythical goddess by using whatever manipulative tools they had to get what they wanted from men. In this letter, Paul is clearly telling the women of the first century church to distance themselves from this type of behavior and from this type of style not to allow these outside forces to shape the beauty of what God was doing in the church between men and women. He's telling the women to not loudly dominate gatherings. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to assume authority over a man. With this word authority, he chooses a a Greek word not from the Bible but from outside the Bible, as a matter of fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular Greek word is used. And the more I've studied it, the more I'm reminded of that great swordsman Emilio Montoya <laughs> from Princess Bride, where he says to Vissini, You keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. This is the word authority. The Greek word Paul chooses, he chose on purpose. It's not used anywhere in the Old or New Testament to describe spiritual authority or authority in working relationships. It is an aggressive word and always used when someone violently or aggressively bullies someone else or takes over by force. I do not believe that Paul is saying that women in the church cannot be peacefully given leadership positions. He's teaching the Christian women not to be aggressive like the women outside the church, not to demand their way, but to trust that God will work on the hearts of both the men and the women in the church, including their pastor, and allow everyone to use their gifting to bless the church. Now, like I said, I could be wrong. But if I am wrong, let me line out how we would have to govern cornerstones. Here we go, let's quote Paul, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, no, go back, modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold pearls, or expensive apparel. So there would be no clothing restrictions for the men, but the women would have to wear modest, inexpensive, sensible clothing at all times. So it's Ross, Marshalls, or Target. for you. And I'm not just talking about the clothes you wear to church. I'm talking about the clothes you wear to the beach. And no elaborate hairstyles and no expensive jewelry. Keep it plain and cheap and simple. Paul says a woman should learn in silence with full submission. She is to be silent. So when we gather, the women must be silent whenever anyone, not just men, are being taught. If we were going to enforce this rule at Cornerstone, our women would not be allowed to enter into discussions on the weekends or in the community groups. I do not allow a woman to teach, Paul says. Women would not be allowed to teach anyone in a church context. Even women's ministries and youth and children's ministries could only be taught by men. I do not allow a woman to have authority over a man. So even if that woman is a 21st century CEO of her own company, when she comes to be with us, she cannot hold a position of authority. Now, this is the literal interpretation of this passage. And this is also where I have to cry foul to those pastors and denominations where I believe they cherry pick a couple of things out of this text and say, this is gospel. This is what Paul says while completely ignoring some of it. I mean, I'm sure they're only teaching you what someone taught them, but I believe they were taught wrong, and they taught you wrong, and I believe it's a teaching that dangerously excludes women from using their gifting where we need them the most. We need women to teach us. We need women to lead us. We need women to influence us. We need women to not be silent in the church. If for no other reason to be real followers of Jesus, we are Christians. Our Christian carries, the, our, our, our religion carries the name of our founder, Christ, who came to earth bringing revolutionary liberation for women. Jesus defines us, and Jesus is for women. Let me tell you about Jesus. He was unlike any other rabbi of his day. Luke tells us in chapter eight that that women were traveling with his school, not just men. And Jesus was obviously apprenticing the women. In Luke chapter 10, we observe Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, a place of honor for a student. The closer you were allowed to sit to the teacher, the higher the honor. And I gotta tell you something about these rabbinical schools. If a rabbi took you on, he was not just letting you be his student, the assumption was he was training you to one day be a rabbi. Now Mary's sister Martha took exception to this, probably because she needed some help in the kitchen, but she asked Jesus to scold Mary and put her in her place. And instead, Mary de- uh, Jesus defended Mary's choice to be trained right alongside the men. In John chapter 11, Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, died, and Jesus came. And when Martha went out to greet him, then she went to see Mary and said, the teacher is asking for you. The teacher. What a wonderful thought that that's what Mary and Martha called Jesus. He's our teacher. For the first time in their life, they had a teacher that wasn't looking past them to teach the men. In Matthew chapter 14, we see that Jesus taught 5,000 families on one day and then was getting ready to feed them. We read the text that says there were 5,000 men plus the women and children. Now, we read that and we quickly explain back then they just counted the men and then, and then uh, you did an estimate on the women and children. But when the first century reader read this, they would have been shocked. They would have asked, Wait, you're saying that this rabbi spent a whole day teaching men along with women and children? What were they doing there? Well, he he allowed them to come and sit in here and listen as well. They would have never heard of a rabbi like this. Jesus had come to break down the walls, the gender walls, the age walls. Plus, he wasn't afraid of his reputation being tarnished by any woman. John tells us in chapter four that there was a woman who met Jesus by that well near Sychar. When they returned, Christ was spending inappropriate alone time with this Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and was now living with a man. Her ethnicity, her gender, and her life choices would have driven any other Jewish rabbi away. They would have never spent time with this woman. But Jesus was the opposite. And before the day is over, she has become the first evangelist of the gospel, the first missionary going back into town and bringing everybody out to the well to meet this man. She said, could it be he might be the Messiah? In Luke chapter seven, uh, Luke tells us that when Jesus was at dinner one day, a woman with a bad reputation in that particular village approached him. She was sobbing, washing his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet, And anointing them with expensive fragrant oil. When the men took exception to all this improper public behavior, Jesus defended her and told her that her faith had saved her. And then at the end of the Gospels, we see the important role women played both at Calvary and the Garden Tomb. Other than the Apostle John, it was the women who were the witnesses to the horrors of the cross. And then on that Sunday morning, it was the women who were the first to speak with Christ. Do you remember that beautiful conversation when Mary thought that Jesus was the gardener? And he called her name. Mary, he said. What was her response? Teacher. She called him teacher. Jesus was Mary Magdalene's teacher. Then Jesus sent her to instruct the men about what had just happened, the resurrection of Christ, the most important event in history. And the first person to tell it is a woman. And then on the day he ascended to heaven, Jesus commissioned women into ministry right alongside the men, telling them to go into all the world and make disciples of everyone, teaching them to do everything Jesus had done, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I will be with you always. And he said this to both men and women. Then he sent them to the upper room where 10 days later they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and to share the gospel with the world. Jesus had no problem with women sharing his gospel. He trusted them with the message right alongside the men. He defended women, he honored women, he commissioned women in the ministry. So if I'm gonna be the lead rabbi in this fellowship, I must do my best imitation of Christ to permit and equip women to teach and to lead. If God trusted Elizabeth, if God trusted Mary, if God trusted Anna to speak about the unborn Messiah's birth, then we can trust our women to talk about him too. If God trusted a teenage girl to carry his son to term and then raise him, we can trust our teenage girls to preach, and to lead. If Jesus trusted the women at the tomb to share the good news with the men, we need to listen to our women who share the good news about Jesus with us. I say if Philip's daughters can preach, then our daughters can preach. And if Junia can be an apostle, then so can our mothers. Jesus empowers women, so we will too. And if you're a woman with gifting to lead us or to teach us, this is the church for you. I'm sorry if some previous religious experience you had was negative in that, that regard, but this is not that church. If you're a girl who could hear my voice, you could someday have my job. There are no gender restrictions at any level in this church. We need your voice and we need your heart. We need you to lead like women lead. We'll lead like men lead, you lead like women lead, and together we will reflect the image of God who made man and woman and said, both together are created in my image. I say to you, join the women on our team that already hold positions of respect at every level in this organization and on every campus. Cornerstone will always be your church, a church that encourages our wives, our sisters, our daughters, our grandmothers, our mothers, our grandchildren to develop all of their gifts and use them without restriction. We are better together and I cannot imagine anything different. And that's what I have to say about that. Thank you for clapping, and uh, that's, that's, that's affirming. And those of you that are struggling with this, stick around, and we'll work through this together. Uh, we actually do have a podcast uh, that where we go further into it. If you want to go on YouTube, you'll find us. It's called Beyond Sunday. We taped the podcast last night, so it should be posted soon if it isn't already. And we're gonna close this service by praying for our women. By praying for our women, And women, I want you to just receive this prayer because it's the men around you that are gonna be praying for you. Let's pray for the women now that are in this room and in the other rooms in these buildings that are all over on all five campuses, that are watching online. Let's pray for the women that are in prisons, that are are following with us in our sermons. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, your only son, and we thank you for loving and empowering women. We thank you for giving us women. I cannot imagine my life without my mom, my mother-in-law, my wife, my sisters, my daughters, my granddaughter. Lord, I've been so blessed in my life with strong and gracious women who have been so patient with me as a man. And Lord, I thank you that over the years, you've caused me to respect even more and more the strength that women bring to the table. Father, I pray for any woman that can hear me that has been discouraged in the past and has been discouraged from using her gifting. And I pray that she would know that here, that not only do we have her back, we wanna train and equip her to use that gifting for you. Father, I thank you for the results that could come out of a sermon like this. As women would be encouraged to seek your Holy Spirit for the best gifts and then to use them for the benefit of the church and the benefit of the world. Raise up strong women from our children's ministries and our youth ministries. Raise up strong women among us that will lead the way our world needs them. Our church needs them. Teach us your ways, O oh Lord, we pray. In Christ's name. Everybody shouted.